the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Good evening, and welcome to The Business of Giving. I'm your host, Denver Frederick, and thanks for joining me tonight. When President Obama won the Nobel Peace Prize, he contributed part of his $1.4 million award to the Posse Foundation. And tonight, you'll hear from their founder and CEO, Deborah Beal, who will share with us the advantages young people realize by going to college with a posse. So we thought, what a great idea. Why not send a team of kids together to college? And that way, if you grew up in the Bronx and you end up in, say, Middlebury, Vermont, you'd be a little less likely to turn around and go home. And then I'll be joined by Sarah Rosenwartel, the president and CEO of the Urban Institute, a nonprofit research organization that provides evidence and data to help decision makers make better choices. We have a special focus on looking at things that will help to close equity gaps, expand economic opportunity for families and individuals, and things that help us build a kind of prosperity that's shared where everyone can benefit. But first, the Business of Giving News Digest for Sunday, February 16th. Contributions to U.S. colleges and universities reached a record $49.6 billion in fiscal year 2019, an increase of 3.6% on a year-over-year inflation-adjusted basis. Old apples and pears create a calorie-free sweetener without some of the environmental issues of our current sugar substitutes. Signs of cancer can appear long before diagnosis. Research into genetic mutations suggests a possibility of tests that would detect cancer earlier. Stephen Schwartzman, CEO of private equity firm Blackstone Group, has joined the Giving Pledge, boosting to 206 the number of individuals and couples pledging to dedicate the majority of their wealth to philanthropic causes. And finally, 98.6 degrees isn't the average anymore. A new study indicates the average normal human body temperature is closer to 97.5 degrees Fahrenheit. And that is the Business of Giving News Digest for this Sunday evening. I'll be back with Debbie Beal right after this. I used to have more hair. I used to have more color. And I used to have cancer. I beat it. I did. Not alone. I used to have no idea what the American Cancer Society did. Research? Yeah. But also free rides to chemo and free lodging near hospitals. I used to maybe give a little. Then I got so much back. I used to have cancer. Please give at cancer.org. A simple smile can say so much. It can say thank you, please, or even I love you. Sometimes a smile can say more than words could ever express. But what if you couldn't smile? Unfortunately, that's the sad reality for so many children today. Without the help of life-saving surgery, helpless children find themselves cast aside and all alone. But it doesn't have to be this way. To learn how you can help Smile Train, the world's largest cleft charity, change the world one smile at a time, go to smiletrain.org. Follow the Business of Giving on Twitter at bizofgive and at facebook.com slash businessofgiving. And now, back to the Business of Giving with your host, Denver Frederick, on AM 970, The Answer. For those who were old enough to remember and watch Westerns on TV, there were times when the sheriff would form a posse to help find someone and bring them to justice. A more contemporary meaning might be a group of people who have a common characteristic, occupation, or purpose, such as going to college together. And an organization that has done that with remarkable effectiveness is the Posse Foundation. And it's a pleasure to have with us tonight their founder and CEO, Deborah Beal. Good evening, Debbie, and welcome to the Business of Giving. Hi, Denver. (laughs) (laughs) So you're working with the City Kids Foundation back in the 1980s. Where did this idea of the Posse Foundation come from? Well, the, the story, which has become legend for us organizationally, is that there, there was a student who had dropped out of college. And he literally said, I never would have dropped out if I had my posse with me. And, oh. and at the time, the word posse was very, you know, hip word in the youth culture. It meant my group of friends, just as your intro suggests, the people who back me up, my team, my mm-hmm. crew. 
So we thought, what a great idea. Why not send a team of kids together to college? And that way, if you grew up in the Bronx and you end up in, say, Middlebury, Vermont, you'd be a little less likely to turn around and go home. What a smart idea. You know, the organization has three major goals. So let's ground the listener a little bit and tell us what those goals are. Well, Posse is this is a, a national college success and leadership development program that tries to address the disconnect between leadership and diversity in the United States. And so we are, our first goal is to expand the pool from which the top colleges can recruit great kids, mm. right? We, we sometimes too narrowly define merit. And Posse is saying merit should cast a net and find lots of kids from lots of different backgrounds. So we expand the pool. The second goal is to help our college partners Build a more integrated diversity on their campus. Build community in a way where everybody feels like they belong. And the third goal is to make sure our kids graduate, obviously, so that they can take on leadership positions in the workforce. That's really the ultimate goal, to build a leadership network for the United States that looks more like the demographics of the population. Mm -hmm. Debbie, we've had a number of people on the show, and we talk about college access programs and almost all of them are looking to provide opportunities for the poor and underprivileged. In what ways does your organization differ from that model? Well, we are, and I'm glad you're asking that question. As far as I know, and there, there may be something else, but we are the only national program addressing issues of diversity through access in higher ed that is merit-based. We don't screen for race. We don't screen for need. Um, and yet we address these issues of diversity. It's so important that um, people understand that that's the goal of Posse, that we are finding young people who, who are outstanding and deserve this opportunity and win the scholarship on their own merits. We see them as the young people who can become senators and CEOs and college presidents who can lead movements, who can be entrepreneurs. Mm. And we select them for that. So this year, and really almost every year, we have about 17,000 kids who are nominated. And we pick 730. Oh, boy. Yeah, super competitive. Yeah, yeah. So you're a strength-based organization as opposed to that deficit mindset, which we usually begin with. That'd right. be fair to say? Well, and those programs that focus on at-risk, poor, minority, needy, underprivileged, underserved, you know, you can fill in the blank. Those are very important programs. We need them. We always need programs like that. Yeah. But if that is the only way that we address the diversity challenges that we have on our college campuses, we start to create an unfortunate division between those students who are meritorious and deserve to be there and those who are students from um, backgrounds of color or mm -hmm. who come from some kind of disadvantage. Yeah. And that's not a good division to make. No, that's a great distinction that you bring up there. Well, before we get into discussing these young scholars, let's focus for a minute on the colleges and universities who are involved. Now, the first one was Vanderbilt University, but what other schools now participate and what do these institutions do for you? Well, you know, they are extraordinary in their partnership. Posse today, um, in its 31st year, has 58 college and university partners, fantastic schools. Vanderbilt is still a partner, in, in, you know, after 31 years. Schools like Brandeis, Bryn Mawr, Hamilton, Northwestern, Cornell, University of Wisconsin-Madison, which actually takes four cohorts a wow. year. Mm -hmm. They have 160 posse scholars wow, that's else. on their campus. It's fantastic. Yeah. And the, the universities commit to providing these full tuition merit scholarships every year. So any given institution is providing about $2 million in scholarships per year. You know, not being a poverty or low-income program in the very strict sense of the word, has that caused you any challenges with some of your partners that you are not, who are defined their scholarships along those lines and the fact that you are merit-based and not based stro strictly on need? Um, you know, I, I think that this country is facing in its higher ed system a challenge when it comes to financial aid. Mm. And we have very limited financial aid dollars. Um, so merit programs, you know, are a real commitment. You're saying that even beyond the, the need that students exhibit, we're going to commit these dollars to honor 
the students that we're admitting. So, you know, there, it, it exists in athletics. Student, students are winning, you know, football scholarships mm-hmm. or basketball scholarships. You know, you find a great kid who's going to be a quarterback. You give them a big scholarship. Yep. It exists in music. We give scholarships for great violinists. Um, oboe it, players it, is what they're looking oboe, for right here. <laughs> oboe players, bassoon players, right? Um, we give scholarships for many different reasons. Um, and we are among those that are the, these imp- these scholarships that honor kids for what they bring to a campus. Mm-hmm. Well, as you m- mentioned a moment ago, this selection process is rigorous. I was just doing the math here. It's under 5%. That is incredible. Um, and you use a dynamic assessment process. How does that work? Right. DAP, we call it DAP. for short. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a fantastic process, right? If all, you know, historically, college admissions can has focused on tests, SATs, ACTs, mm-hmm. GPA, high school ranking. Those things are important. But if they're the only way we... Uh, assess a college application, we miss a lot of kids. So the dynamic assessment process brings in uh, students who've been nominated by a college counselor, a principal, someone who says, oh, I believe in this young person. And this young person might not show up on the radar screen. Maybe she doesn't have a top SAT score. Mm -hmm. Maybe she doesn't go to a, a highly ranked high school. And we bring in 100 students at a time into a room all together. Can you imagine that, Denver? Think about it. You're 17 years old, you've been nominated, and you walk in and there's 100 students in a room. And our staff comes into the room and says, hi, everybody. <laughs> you know, we're going to run you through. You know, I'm getting nervous just yeah, listening not, to you. I, I, you know I, what I mean? <laughs> imagine if we then said we're going to run you through a series of interactive games and activities so that we can see things that don't show up. On a, on a piece of paper. Well, give us an example of so one of those So imagine you're building, you're in a small group of 10 and you're building a robot made out of Legos. Mm. And you have a certain time frame and you have certain rules and parameters. And we say, go. Now, our staff is watching, right? We're looking for leadership ability, communication skills, ability to work in a team. We look at things like that throughout these activities, right? Public speaking skills, problem solving skills. And it's in real time, and it's fun. So mm-hmm. the young people that are there get a great experience. They get exposed to all these different colleges that we work with. And we get to see the real person, the whole person, the things that, sh- that can show up in a way that they can't show up on a piece of paper. Yeah. And you also asked these candidates some very interesting questions. Share a few of those, if you would. Well, you know, the questions that we want young people to engage in not just in this interview process, but in our society, are related to the issues that concern us as a country. Mm -hmm. You know, what do you think about science and how we approach science? You know, um, uh, what do you think about the way we are, are building our education system, the way we address issues of race and class and gender? How do politics and religion intersect? If you had to think about the future you want for your children, what would that future look like? Mm -hmm. What is something you wish our government would do? Are you afraid for our democracy? If you ask young people to engage in questions like that on the spot in a small group, we get to see how they think. And that's important. Yeah, This is not rote learning, is it? It's not going to help you in, in those particular cases. As you said a moment ago, our country is overly reliant on these test scores when it comes to admitting young people into college. Is there anything that you're doing here that could be replicable on a much, much larger scale in trying to improve that process across the board? Yeah, and and there's so many levels to that answer. But all of our colleges and universities, you know, with or without posse, believe that it's important to look beyond a test score. There's not one college admissions officer or VP for enrollment who would say, no, we don't want to focus on anything but a test score. Mm-hmm. Um, and But they don't have the luxury of interviewing students the way Posse does, these thousands and thousands yeah, of students yeah. across the country. Yeah, um, so I say that um, because I think it's important for the country to understand that it's not easy to be in admissions. And we need systems to screen the thousands of students, the tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of students that are applying every year. I think people make a mistake when they think that 
the admissions process should be objective. Mm-hmm. It is not an objective process. It's a subjective process. The head of admissions is trying to create a class every year. And when she thinks about that, she thinks about diversity. She thinks about interest. She thinks about talent. She thinks about what these kids are going to bring to a community. It's okay to do that. Mm-hmm. That's what a college is. It's a it's a group of young people who come together to study, to learn from each other. So what can they learn from Posse? I think they can take some of the activities that we use um, and see if that's applicable on a larger scale. Um, they can They can look at the qualities and traits that we evaluate and build them even more into their own application process when they read essays and do interviews. Yeah. You know, when you're talking about building a class at a college, um, you reminded me of a great metaphor, is that um, it is a lot like a desk drawer. And in a desk drawer, nobody needs 12 scissors. You need a scissor and a stapler and some scotch tape and different things along those lines. And when you're dependent just on an SAT score, you're going to get 12 scissors more times than not. And you're obviously trying to get the full complement of what you need to, to function in the office, so to speak. It's funny. That's You just thought of that analogy on the spot? Uh, I know I've thought about that once before because I I think about things like that. And it it just kind of is the way we do things. We look to hire, hire, so to speak, or bring in more of the same. But you miss so much by doing that. That's right. We make the same mistake in in corporate or when we hire people. We we tend to lean towards hiring people that are just like us. Yeah, we hire ourselves. Yeah, and that's not a great idea. No, it's not not a great Mm -hmm. idea at all. Okay, so I've been one of these lucky or chosen at four or five percent and i'm at school how do scholars become acquainted with one another in this cohort i think it's 10 people as you said before and what's it like when we're all together at the university of wisconsin at madison you know posse has a pre-college program so Mm -hmm. students are selected in december of their senior year in high school there's an award ceremony in january and then for Eight months, they come once a week after school with their posse. And they're participating in workshops that help them think about their own leadership, what Mm -hmm. they want to do with that leadership. Um, It helps them think about the team, about how they interact um, cross-culturally. The the training is really um, intense and wonderful. And by the time August rolls around, they're a posse. And they go together to a college. Cool. So imagine you've been with your, your group for eight months, and now you're going to go together to University of Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. When you get there, there's a community on campus. All these posse scholars that are second and third and fourth year students welcome you. It's a beautiful, diverse group. You could be black, Latinx, Pakistani, mm-hmm. Jewish, gay, straight. You. It is a real representation of the diversity of the population of this country. And it's a community of leaders. So they don't stick together. They engage in all of the different activities on campus. And that in and of itself creates not just a model of diversity, but a way for other kids to be part of this beautiful fabric that's being woven on on the campus. Very cool. Uh, Debbie, are there on-site support services for Posse students? When you're on campus? Yeah, yeah. So there's a mentor. It's mm-hmm. generally a tenured faculty mentor who um, is trained by Posse along with all the mentors from the other universities. And that mentor meets with the kids once a week as a group and then individually with each Posse scholar once every other week. Um, and that lasts for the first two years that they're on campus. There's also something called the Posse Plus Retreat, mm-hmm. which – and I, I think this is pretty fascinating and this can be applied – even outside of a posse through our posse consulting, which we offer to any institution. Um, every year, posse scholars identify a social or political issue that they think is important. When um, Barack Obama was elected president, the topic they wanted to talk about was race. Is America post-racial was a question that was going around throughout the country. Mm-hmm. I recall. And, yeah, and young people were saying, really? Mm-hmm. Really? Do we? So the retreat was called, Do We Still Need to Talk About Race? Um, they've had retreats on class and power and privilege. Last year was the State of Our Union. Mm. And just like the president of the United States gives a State of the Union address, they wanted to talk about what they thought was going on 
with the Me Too movement and education and health care and jobs in the country. And they did. And they reported back mm-hmm. to the country through Telemundo. Um, a so different th- speech, I would guess. A different, a little bit of a difference <laughs> in their perspective. Um, and this year, it's it's um, the state of political discourse. Uh-huh. What's happening with how we talk to each other? Yeah, yeah. Why can't we talk to one another? Why are we so um, resistant to hearing each other's views? And when we feel passionately about something, why is it that we can't persuade others? to understand our own passions. And that's what the retreat is about this year. That's so a, that's a big thing that yeah, happens on these campuses. Yeah, yeah. And why do we make it so personal all the time if no, you don't agree with me? It feels very personal, it doesn't does. it? It does. Yeah. It's not that I disagree with you. It's that you are morally bankrupt. <laughs> you know, there's something you have a character defect, and that's where the yeah. discussion has, has come, which is really quite alarming. Give us a sense of the breadth and depth of this program. How many young people have been part of the Posse program? How many are currently in colleges now? And maybe a couple of your notable alums. Well, so we, since 1989, we've sent close to 10,000 Posse Scholars. Congratulations. Yeah, to college. It's really exciting. And and they have won an astounding $1.5 billion <laughs> in scholarships mm-hmm. from our partner colleges and universities. They graduate at rates of over 90%. That compares to about 59% nationwide? Nationwide. Wow, that's pretty impressive. And then they become leaders in the workforce, you know. Mm-hmm. We're watching Posse alum do incredible things. Um, They're journalists. They're attorneys. They are doctors. They are researchers. They're getting their PhDs. Uh, Fulbright told us once that if Posse was a college, we would be ranked in the top 10 for Fulbright winners. Mm -hmm. Debbie, you've also created some specialized uh, Posse programs. What would those be? So um, the Posse Foundation established a science, technology, engineering, and math Posse program, a STEM Posse program, to identify young people who specifically were interested in research and science and math. Um, and we recruit them and send them in teams to, to institutions of higher education as well. And that's really important because we see a tremendous lack of diversity in the STEM fields. Um, So this is one way of helping to address that. And then we also established a post-9-11 United States Veterans Posse program. Oh, cool. There are a couple of million vets um, in the United States right now, post-9-11 vets, who many of them have not gone to college. Mm -hmm. And I got a phone call from, at the time, Cappy Cappy Bond Hill was the president. President Vassar? Vassar, right. And she said, do you think we could apply (laughs) this concept, this cohort model concept to vets? They had one vet on their campus. And we loved the idea. And the board immediately said, let's do this. We raised a couple million dollars. Instantaneously. Yeah, just so quickly. And we now send vets to colleges and universities in posses. Vassar, they had one vet, now has 40 vets on their campus. Tonight is the award ceremony for the newest class of posse scholars who are post-9-11 vets. It's a great program. Yeah, sounds like You have 10 offices around the country. You're getting close to 200 employees. Tell us a little bit about your corporate culture and anything specific that you have done to make it a great place to work. Well, Posse is probably one of the most beautiful organizations. I know I'm biased. Uh, we have a very you should be. <laughs> we have a very diverse staff. Um, if you come into our organization, I think you'll see that right away. Mm-hmm. It's it should be the gold standard for how diversity looks on a staff. Um, there are eight people on the senior, the executive team. Fifty percent of them are Posse alum just to give you a sense of, of that. Yeah. Um, it's very collaborative. It's very um, warm and fun. We hire people who are really, really smart, mm-hmm. but also who are um, team players. Yeah. And you, smart you and feel nice that. Smart and great, nice, smart good, and positive. It's a good combination. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, you know, I, I know you like to have ideas. We now operate out of 10 cities. Yeah. And... As we grew, it became harder and harder to get consensus on every decision that would be made for the program or for the organization. So we established something called Koosh Rockets, where if a city or a staff person in a city has an idea for 
changing the program or changing something in the organization, they send a missile, <laughs> a ball, can they throw it uh-huh. figuratively, to the national office where our training and evaluation team, our strategic planning team looks at the idea. If the idea is a good one, we pilot test it. And if we like the results of the pilot test, we roll it out to all 10 cities and it becomes an institutional change. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a nice way to include people. It's not as fast a process, but it works. Yeah, sure. And there's, you know, different expertise in each of these 10 cities. And if you can take one of those experts and apply it to all 10 with a great idea, that is a smart thing to do. You have found you founded and have led this organization now for over thirty years. What are the secrets for staying fresh, not getting stale, and keeping you motivated every single day? It's easy. I mean, for me, it if we are engaged in our society in a meaningful way, Posse is contributing to improving the state. Mm-hmm. of literally of politics, of, um, of the social fabric of our country, then that's going to keep me engaged. <laughs> I, I am very worried about our democracy right now. I'm worried that we are taking for granted the rights and privileges that are granted to us through the Constitution. I'm worried that we don't talk enough in a way that's respectful. And posse scholars are going to be out there leading understanding that when we do think about race and class and when we think about religion and when we think about gender, mm-hmm. when we make decisions, we're going to make better decisions. So posse scholars are going to sit at a table in government, in higher education, in healthcare, and they will make a tremendous difference. That keeps me engaged. That yeah. keeps me excited. Mm-hmm. Well, it's always great for a leader when they're not thinking about the past but has their eye have their eyes squarely on the future, which you do. Let me close with this, Debbie. Share with us a story of one of your scholars who was part of this program, what it meant to them, and what they've been able to go on to do as a result. There are so many stories. Um, I think one story that is most wonderful is a story of a member of the very first posse Hmm. that went to Vanderbilt. Um, Shirley Collado, who grew up in Brooklyn, a Dominican kid. Her dad drove a yellow taxi in the city. Um, She didn't have the best SAT scores, and she certainly wasn't thinking about Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee. But she is in the first posse. Mm -hmm. She graduates from Vanderbilt with honors, gets her doctorate in clinical psychology from Duke University. She becomes the dean of the college at Middlebury, a top 10 school. And a couple of years ago, Mm -hmm. Shirley became the president of Ithaca College. She is the first Dominican-American to be president of a four-year college in the entire United States. It's a story that captures what we're trying to do with our partner schools at Posse. Just build opportunities so that these leaders who are right there before our eyes can take advantage of the opportunities that exist at these institutions of higher education and go on and become leaders. Well, now I better understand what keeps you going. Well, Deborah Beal, the founder and CEO of the Posse Foundation, I want to thank you so much for being here this evening. Tell us about your website and how people can help if they're inspired to do so. Well, we would love help. We need help. We have a $26 million budget this year, so we need help. Um, Any donations are helpful. Um, Our website is www.possefoundation.org, and there's video and information on the website. And if people want to get involved, we'd love to have them get involved. Thanks, Debbie. It was a real pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much, Denver. I'll be back with more of the business of giving right after this. Technology can change lives, but underserved communities around the world have yet to experience all the benefits technology offers. Benetech is a nonprofit whose mission is to empower communities in need by creating scalable technology solutions. Learn more by visiting Benetech.org. You probably know Sesame Street as the TV show that taught you letters and numbers. But Sesame is so much more. Sesame Workshop is a nonprofit with a mission to help all children grow smarter, stronger, and kinder. Big Bird wants to help, so he started the Yellow Feather Fund to bring education to children in need. You can help, too. Visit yellowfeatherfund.org to learn more or make a donation. That's yellowfeatherfund.org. 
top companies have now begun to discover a reliable source for skilled new talent, and they're finding great success with employees who are productive, engaged, and innovative. Explore the country's largest untapped talent pool, 24 million Americans with disabilities. The National Organization on Disability is the leading partner for companies looking to accelerate their disability employment efforts, attract, hire, and retain. Learn more at NOD.org. If you're interested in reading transcripts of guests' interviews from the business of giving, you can find them at denverfrederick.wordpress.com. And now back to the show on AM 970, The Answer. It was just over 50 years ago, 1968 to be precise, that the Urban Institute was founded to measure and evaluate the effectiveness of President Lyndon Johnson's War on Poverty. Tonight, we'll talk about how it has evolved since then, but more, how it is preparing for the challenges of the coming half century so we have a country where everyone can rise. And we'll do that with Sarah Rosen Hortel, the president and CEO of the Urban Institute. Good evening, Sarah, and welcome to the Business of Giving. Good evening. It's great to be here. You know, people hear on the news all the time that, according to the Urban Institute, a nonpartisan research organization, and then they go on to report the story. But that's about the extent of what most of us know. So who is the Urban Institute? Well, we are a nonprofit research organization. Um, We're made up of people who are passionate about uh, building empirical evidence and doing analysis of data to help uh, decision makers make better choices all across society on things that improve people's lives, strengthen communities, We have a special focus on looking at things that will help to close equity gaps, expand economic opportunity for families and individuals, and things that help us build a kind of prosperity that's shared where everyone can benefit. Mm -hmm. Now, for people I know who are familiar with your organization, they described it as rigorous, factually accurate, and maybe a little left-leaning. Would that be a fair assessment or not? Um, I think the institution doesn't have a lean, Mm -hmm. but... The people we in, we draw to it are diverse and have a broad variety of perspectives, but they're people who are committed to looking at questions of poverty and opportunity. You recently commemorated your 50th anniversary at what was dubbed the Next 50 Changemaker Forum. What is a changemaker and who can be a changemaker? So once upon a time, we thought of changemakers particularly as people in elected offices of power. 535 members of Congress, a few agency heads at the federal level, and if you're being broad-minded, city and state, too. Mm -hmm. Um, But today, people who are changemakers can be found all across society. They are social entrepreneurs, people who run nonprofits, who are trying to deliver services. They are philanthropists who, uh, in communities, and are the, the grandest, most successful of our titans who are investing their resources in trying to drive change, drive change. And we want today to be a partner to help improve the decisions of all of these different influencers in society. Yeah, that's really interesting because essentially what you're saying is that the federal government's role has changed pretty significantly from what it was 50 years ago in solving these problems because of what you just described, these change makers. Would that be a fair assessment? I think that's absolutely fair. And I think the it's not just it is um, it's not that the feds have um, left the playing field, mm-hmm. but I think that their capacity to be innovative and drive change, at least right now with the partisan divisions that we have across society, is more limited. But they can be influenced by seeing good, promising ideas from across the country. And so we want to be sort of handmaidens helping to empower good decision-making and spark new ideas um, in places that will ultimately be able to be able to be able to work at scale. God, yeah. So you're sort of an incubator. Get those ideas, and once they prove that they are, the proof of concept is there, let's see if we can ratchet it up with the federal government. And if there are bad ideas, it's important that people know that they're not working sooner <laughs> yeah, rather yeah, yeah, than yeah. later after yeah. we spend a lot of energy and effort on them, too. And let's, let's include money. That's right. <laughs> um Give us some insights, Sarah, and some examples of how racial injustice is baked in to the important social issues we are facing today and what you guys are doing to try to address that. Um, well, let me use um, uh, where we live and how people 
um, homes have value is just one great example. I mean, we made policy decisions, shameful, I would argue, policy decisions in many cities, many communities over many uh, decades to segregate where people have a chance to live. And as a result, if you still look at how we uh, sort ourselves across geographies, our society is deeply segregated, which also means our schools are deeply segregated. And it also means that the homes that people live in, in neighborhoods that are concentrated black, for example, don't always appreciate at the same levels as homes that um, may be in majority white neighborhoods. There's nothing different about the homes. There's nothing different Mm -hmm. about the families and the people. And even if today you take those two homeowners from a similar starting place, their ability to accumulate wealth is different, and that reinforces, perpetuates wealth inequality, which today is greater than it has ever been. The number of black homeowners today is the same, the same rate of black home ownership we have today is when we had 1968, which was the year the law that made discrimination housing illegal My. was first passed. Mm-hmm. So these things are kind of baked into society in ways, and we've got to go look, not just describe the disparities, which if you reinforce something often and often enough, it actually becomes sort of self-fulfilling and reinforcing of our own society's mis- you know, misfortune. But instead, we've really got to actually look at the root causes and try to help us unpack and disentangle those causes in order for us to overcome the um, the past. Gotcha. Let me stick with baking. Are you concerned that the algorithms that are being baked into artificial intelligence could have a legacy of discrimination and are really just merely exporting that from the analog world to the digital world? And if that is the case, what do we do? I am concerned, uh, and part of what we need to do is we need people who um, are thinking about that problem involved in the design of the algorithms. I don't believe we're going to go back to a world where we don't use knowledge, Mm -hmm. but we need to make sure that the knowledge we're relying on to make decisions is better and doesn't have these uh, negative forces. So, for example, we have a working group right now that is working with lots of other actors across society to see how um, uh, the algorithms that are often used by employers to decide which resumes to interview, which candidates to consider, they may have norms built into them from the past that have segregation and discrimination at their heart. But it is also possible that we can use algorithms to figure out who has maybe not the credential for the job that we've once looked for, but they may have the capability to do the job. And those same analytic tools, um, AI and others, could help us find that. So it really requires somebody to look behind. It, it's the black box that's scary. If mm-hmm. we don't know what we're relying on and we can't analyze its effects on sorting, we could end up baking these in more Uh, more firmly and hardening the inequalities. But it's possible even that you could use some of these algorithms for good, that they could help unpack some of the very structures that I was talking about before. And so my hope is that we develop the expertise to be a sorter of those effects. Yeah. I think sometimes the way we hire people is pretty antiquated and somebody has to take a look at it and and just review it from top to bottom. Um, First off, as you were just saying, you have to look at a person's potential, not everything that they've achieved. And I had a a fellow on the show once who talked about that perfect cover letter Mm -hmm. and how all the English and all the grammar has to be perfect. And he had a hard time getting a job. He's now a CEO of a nonprofit organization. (laughs) But he said, you know, nobody asked me in this, does it make any difference that I speak five language and English is my fifth language? (laughs) (laughs) But he had an adverb wrong, and that was essentially essentially it. Well, sticking with structural racism, um, you're doing a lot of things uh, around that, such as Measure for Change, which is an initiative examining racial equity and inclusion within organizations. Let's talk about the Urban Institute for a moment, and what are you doing within your own organization to try to address that? So for the last five years, we've been pursuing what we call our DEI roadmap, and it has three components, the most obvious of which in some ways is the composition of our workforce. Mm -hmm. Um, And people think of that principally as being about hiring, which is critically important, but equally important is about retention and 
um, making sure that everybody is has a chance to get ahead within the organization on a level playing field, which means clarity about what it takes to succeed. Too long in society, those norms were communicated sort of informally in ways that really advantaged some who were more like us and disadvantaged others. Yeah, so a big so, thing about an organization, too, is that people, if they can see the fairness because it's transparent, it makes a big difference. That makes a big difference. And I'm, I, I wouldn't pretend that we have this all right, but this is something we're working hard on. Mm-hmm. Beyond composition, though, we think it's critically important that you really examine racism and its consequences in the root of the content of your work. If what we did was to continue to simply describe disparities, describe the disadvantage that some populations have over others, without any examination of its roots, using language, uh, I always use the example, um, some people say a person earns less than another. But you could say a person is paid less than another. You convey a very different thing about the worth of Mm -hmm. the individual. So we really want to examine the language we use to talk about justice-involved populations or Latinx communities or others. Um, So the content of the work and what questions you ask is critically important. And then the last component is about the culture of the organization. At the end of the day, you need a place where every person, regardless of where they come from and their lived experience, feels like they can be their own true selves. That means listening and hearing some hard truths and really getting comfortable being uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you that in the last couple of weeks in my organization, we've had some very painful conversations around assumptions that people used in pursuing work. you got to just go through that, live it, and own your responsibility for the hurt and harm that sometimes people experience um, in ways that people um, aren't even aware of. Yeah, and, yeah. Do a lot of listening. Do a lot of listening. That's right. And as you say, if you don't have that inclusion component going there, you're not going to get the retention because you think your numbers look good, but people don't feel like they belong, and that makes all the difference. And, and retention is important not just because you want to be an organization that has uh, a rainbow color in your workforce. Mm-hmm. It goes to the quality of the work we right. do. We can't understand the society that we're trying to help uh, improve if we don't have all of the different experiences at the table when we're figuring out what questions to ask, uh, collecting information, interpreting the results. It really requires that we ourselves, to be good at our jobs, are different in who we are. You are involved in so many things. Let me ask you about a couple of your initiatives and projects. Um, One of them you're doing in coordination with the Kresge Foundation, the Brookings Institute, and Living Cities, and it's called the Shared Prosperity Partnership. What are its objectives, and what have you been able to achieve? Well, at the most obvious level, the objective is that when cities, whether they're cities that are uh, have long struggled, places we've been working like Detroit and Fresno that are really uh, struggling to get some economic momentum, or places that are thriving like Arlington, Virginia, where Amazon, Amazon HQ2 too. is yep. about to land, mm-hmm. we're working in all those places, mm-hmm. but that the growth that they experience when they experience it is designed to be the kind of growth where the benefits inert all the population mm-hmm. and not just the top. That's the critical challenge we're finding in our society, and it's mapped on our cities as well. So the aim of that initiative is to go in and help those places make sure their growth is um, an inclusive kind. In order to do that, the problems that um, are you work on on those challenges are different depending upon what's important to local leaders. So we're uh, very unusual, I think. Uh, in We're here from Washington and we're to help, not to tell you what to do, <laughs> but for you to tell us what you're trying to do mm-hmm. and see if we know something or could analyze data or we could bring an experience from another city that would be helpful to you. And so this is a case where our work plan is designed not by us, not by Brookings or urban or living cities, but by a group of local leaders who say, this is what we want help on. And then we look in our institutions each and say, what do we have that can be of support? Back to listening again. Back to listening. And you know what? There is that history of national organizations coming into communities and just sucking all the wealth out of it and not having those locals benefit from <laughs> any of it. So it is a an inspiring program. There are many challenges uh, that we face in this country, but I don't know if there's anyone, uh, any one of them that is more difficult than affordable housing. Um, You have focused on a regional housing framework for the Washington, D.C. area. Tell us about that initiative and how's it going? 
Well, I would say we're making good progress, um, not perfect. Um, and in fact, the arrival of Amazon uh, to D.C., um, had a really uh, powerful benefit, although there's you know concerns about the growth and whether the growth there will be one that we can control and avoid some of the adverse consequences. We're familiar of with Seattle. that here in New yes. York, you know, <laughs> uh, just a little bit, my hometown. Um, but uh, it's also focused the conversation on this problem. So at at the root of the problem of affordable housing is the laws of supply and demand. And if you, what Urban's been doing is we looked at the population growth and the incomes of the people that are in the area and the supply of housing, and we're growing much faster than we're increasing the number of units. So the strategies you need are to produce more units affordable at the levels where people uh, need them in the market, to preserve units that are naturally affordable, don't let them get swept up in the market, and protect the character of neighborhoods and tenants. So we did an analysis that jurisdiction by jurisdiction, how many units, at what income levels do those community need? And we got the council, Regional Council of Governments to adopt it, the business community to put some muscle behind it, and now each of those jurisdictions has to map plans out to produce the mm-hmm quality of affordable, quantity of affordable housing that they have. And some of them are honestly further along than others. And some of them would say, we don't want that kind of growth. And we're struggling to get a consensus. But now there's a roadmap and Mm -hmm. a plan that um, allows people to to work towards a goal that will hopefully uh, put downward pressure on rents over time. That'd be great. We'll keep an eye on that one. Uh, Last year, you launched the Prison Research and Innovation Initiative. Now, this is one of the few issues that people can agree on on both sides of the aisle, albeit for different reasons. What are you taking a look at? When we, as a society, about 20, 25 years ago, sort of decided that lock them up was the best plan to deal with our uh, real deep concerns about crime, one of the other things we did is we sort of closed the door on looking at what happens inside prisons. Um, and even as it's important, and I think we're doing other work to um, try to find alternatives to prison, because in many cases it's not particularly effective. We also have to recognize that we're going to have an incarcerated state for some time. And the experience of prison shouldn't be counterproductive to what we're trying to achieve in society and shouldn't be inhumane. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what we're really looking at – and so so one is we need to understand the, the experience of prison and what it does to people and whether it's effective at preventing crime in the future – Um, But we also need to understand um, uh, sort of data and efforts that prison being this sort of black box, um, we don't have any transparency into into experience. So we're working with five states which have identified individual prisons in their system that are interested in innovation. We're helping them to create, collect a whole lot more information about the lives of the prisoners there and their experiences and trying to help figure out what kind of programs work to make the um, population become more successful when they're not in prison. Stop the revolving door. Stop the revolving door. Mm-hmm. That's great. Um, every field learns and evolves and gains new insights, sometimes recognizing the way they've been approaching things is not doing much good or actually can be counterproductive and making the problem uh, even worse. Since you arrived at the Urban Institute back in 2012, what new understanding about these challenges has the field come to? Goodness, um, so many. Um, I, I, well, let me let me talk about two things that we've come to realize about how we do research mm-hmm. that I think uh, are really important. Um, once upon, and I started to talk a little bit about this before. Once upon a time, um, give an example. Urban Institute essentially defined the field of pair testing to help us document and understand the extent to which we have housing discrimination. That that work, which I think uh, immensely proud of was done over many decades by a largely white-led team Mm -hmm. um, without anyone with the lived experiences of the communities that we were studying. Um, Today, we increasingly try to use community-engaged methods, which means involving the community that we're studying in understanding the very question we're trying to study and what is most important to know, Collecting, helping us to collect the information, helping us to interpret the information mm-hmm. because their experiences may bring insight to the data that we can't have. Closer to the problem, closer to the solution. And then be part of designing solutions mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. So certainly um, thinking about research is not a uh, – you have to be in 
independent and you have to be rigorous, but that is different than being removed and disengaged and unaware. Yeah, this is a f- something that the field has really liked, I think, which is constituency feedback. That's that we always, I mean, I've been in nonprofit organizations that you ask your fellow uh, employees, you ask your board, you bring in experts, you do everything. No one goes to the population that you're serving and ask them, is this working or not, or what do you need? I mean, I'll, just recently we were designing a project, and this was my own blind spot where we were talking about who should be involved. And we looked at, um, you know, national experts on this question and academic experts and all like. And then our staff said to us, wait a minute. What about the communities who this uh, intervention is going to be applied on? And we've got to constantly remind ourselves that lived experience is evidence, too, and there's expertise in communities that we don't have. Yeah, and it also gets those communities to buy in when the so-called remedy or whatever you want to call it is being introduced. You know, you talked about academia, and I think there are a lot of people have the impression that these reports are written by academics for other academics and they don't really get out there to the real world. And I know that trying to get uh, a get greater clarity and coherence and impact and communicate more effectively is one of your top objectives. You uh, you've, um, have a new book called Elevating the Debate. Tell us a little bit about it and what those recommendations are. Well, um, when about eight years ago, we started on a journey to think about how do you take the insight from the research and lift it up in a way that doesn't um, sort of simplify it, doesn't make it, you know, dumb it down, but instead really communicates it so you have a bigger audience. And we kind of think of this as a almost a pyramid in which the smallest, tightest insight, it could be 140 characters in a, in a tweet, can reach a very broad audience. But for us, you might want to click down through that tweet to a a, a brief or a data visualization or a graph. And then from that, you could get to a research report. And if somebody wants to know the Greek letters and the um, design of the uh, formulas that were used for the research, they can find that too. And maybe they can even find the underlying data. So there's a transparency about the work, but that we realize that we're aiming for lots of different audiences mm-hmm. out of the same insight. Credibility with the other scholars gives you credibility with a broader audience. But at the end of the day, impact comes from having more people see and engage with and give us feedback on the work that we do. Yeah, yeah. So you're really building gateways. At this And people will it. stop at whatever gateway they want, but at least you will have gotten them that much information. And that, that's, a, that's an interesting way to do it. Let's talk a little bit about facts because I'm not too impressed with facts sometimes, at least in terms of persuasion. They don't seem to change everybody anybody's mind. But, you know, there are factual facts and there are emotional facts. Speak a little bit about how you have to communicate to get somebody to see things in a different light. Well, I, at the end of the day, what we're hoping people will do is connect and hear evidence. We know, unfortunately, that people often close their minds to facts that aren't consistent with their worldview. You're right. Um, um, but you may be able to connect to them through empathy or emotion. Stories are a very powerful way of connecting people to someone else's experience. On the other hand, as a rigorous researcher, you're not convinced that your anecdote is just as good as my anecdote, then suddenly we don't have any consensus about what the truth is. So the the art of research in this environment is to be able to start Take a look at some data, form hypotheses, test that against lived experience. Um, And if you're confident that the storytelling that you're doing, that the um, individual cases or the uh, emotional connection that you can make through video or other efforts is consistent with the underlying facts, then have confidence. And again, use that mode of transparency so Mm -hmm. people can test what you're sharing with them. You mentioned a moment ago impact. And you're a little different than other nonprofit organizations in that you are doing research and facts and insights. How do you go about measuring your impact? Um, it's a really good question, and every think tank I've ever been involved with wrestles with this. But there are, I think, two principal um, metrics we look for. The first is where you can see a change in a law and a regulation and a policy. Recently, the governor of Michigan took, um, changed the rules on their public benefit programs like um, TANF and SNAP food stamps. And 
they to help allow people to, for example, retain a car mm-hmm. or have a little bit of money in emergency savings without losing their benefits. They did that based on a report we'd written five or six years earlier. Um, but when a new age, uh, secretary came into the agency, he convinced the governor to make this change. For us, that's hugely powerful impact. But sometimes impact is getting the conversation to change mm-hmm. and force decision makers who are debating something in a much more political environment to at least reckon with the facts. So recently we did analysis of all of the different um, proposals for expanding or shrinking our um, health insurance system in this country, uh, everything from repealing the ACA to Medicare for all to just building on the existing system. And we put out information about how many people would each of these different plans cover and how much would it cost society. Mm -hmm. And we saw in the presidential debates candidates having to defend their plans. They had to reckon with the facts. Mm -hmm. It's not going to necessarily change the outcome of what policy alone. You have to get people excited about your ideas. But now they can – we feel like we really elevated the debate in that circumstance. And we knew we had an effect when there was a Saturday Night Live skit that they did a few nights about the presidential debate. And they after some economists say, and we at the Urban Institute puffed out our our (laughs) chest because we were the sum economists. We were the sum economists. Now I know you've really made it. Exactly. John Oliver cited us the other day, too. We said, okay, that's that's impact, too. (laughs) Well, both of them will beat the business of giving us. I'll show you that. Um, speak about your philosophy of leadership, Sarah. You know, the influence in your life that have helped shape you as a leader and maybe a lesson you've learned that has served you well in this role. Um, so I have, for much of my career until I was in this role, I was often um, a second to people who were in different kinds of leadership roles, mm-hmm. supporting and facilitating and helping them. And I'll be totally honest, um, it was a hard transition from, you know, the COO to the CEO uh, because I kept wanting to do the work rather than try to create a vision and lead people toward it. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, and because I could imagine doing the work for a long time, I kept thinking, well, let me let me share how I would do it, you mm-hmm. know, because then we'd have more people. But then all I would have is a whole bunch of people doing it my way and then they would aim to maybe um, – you know, either resist because they didn't think I was listening, which isn't good, or they might um, – we might lose the benefit of their creativity and what they would have to contribute if we said together, well, here's a goal. Now let's think about what's your idea to get there. So I've been working really hard lately on trying to find ways to lead um, like one of my former board members, a guy named Freeman Hubowski does. Mm-hmm. He's, he is my role model Baltimore? Uh, on this. Yes, yeah, he yeah, runs yeah, UMBC. Yeah, he's, he's a great guy. He's an extraordinary leader who's produced more future PhDs of color than any institution in the country. And I've been a benefit of his um, support and mentorship as of thousands of others. And he kind of smothers you in confidence and makes you believe that what you're capable of great things and then urges you to think about what those great things might be Mm -hmm. and then lets you know that if it doesn't go okay. He's there to be your support. And and that confidence allows you to try things you never would before. Now, I'm not necessarily exactly a Freeman Hubowski, but I'm trying to get there more every day. Yeah, well, let's face it. We all have limiting beliefs. And if somebody can help us eliminate those limiting beliefs, we're always – what's possible is much more than we even ever imagined. Let me close with this, Sarah. Um, If you could reallocate resources that are directed to the issues that you're concerned with, where would you put more money because it's working? And maybe where would you take it away from because there simply isn't a lack of evidence to its efficacy? Well, I think I would put more money towards um, providing affordable housing for people at the mm-hmm. bottom of the income spectrum. We know that housing is a platform, that stability, not going through a cycle of eviction and cow surfing, has a huge effect on the outcomes for children in families and for parents and their ability to maintain um, stable employment and create opportunity for their family. Um, And so if the incomes that our society is paying is insufficient to the cost of housing in many of our most opportunity-rich places, we've got to find a way to do it. Today, only 20% of the people who are eligible for public um, housing assistance programs of different kinds actually receive them, Hmm. which means – and that's millions of families who I think would have a better start in life if their housing was stable. That's worth money, I think, because we're paying for it on the back end. Mm -hmm. 
On the other hand, on things that maybe we should spend a little bit less money on, we've, um, I do believe higher education is a fabulous pathway to economic opportunity. But right now, both society through Pell Grants and um, uh, uh, all kinds of aid and individuals are investing money in a lot of educational programs that don't actually work, mm -hmm. by which I mean either they have very low likelihood of people completing and getting a degree of value, <clears throat> or they're educating people for things that aren't well aligned with what the labor markets are going to need in the future. Um, and we have to be more discerning about where we give the support to try to encourage our institutions to provide the kinds of opportunity. And for some people for whom Classroom learning may not be the right way. Um, we're huge believers at the Urban Institute in apprenticeships um, and other kinds of workforce training programs that help people get opportunity and become lifetime learners rather than four-year four degree earners. Well, Sarah Rosenwartel, the president and CEO of the Urban Institute, I want to thank you so much for being here this evening. Tell us about your website, what's on it, and how people can help if they're inspired to do so. Uh, please visit us at uh, www.urban.org. I think you will find a um, – we have a blog called Urban Wire, which makes a lot of this research quick and accessible. You can read five, six paragraphs, tells you a little bit about what we're finding. And we'd love to hear your ideas. What are the problems in your communities that you think um, could be – we could help to elevate the debate? Well, thanks, Sarah. It was a real pleasure to have you on the show. My, really great to be here. Thanks so much. And that is this week's show. Often overlooked in the sector is the vital role that philanthropic advisory firms play. We'll look at that next week when my guest will be Sam Pretty Ganguly, the CEO of Arabella Advisors. Thanks for listening. Have a great week. And do return next Sunday evening for the business of giving. The preceding program is paid for by the friends and partners of the business of giving.